Thank you, fellas, for another amazing worship set. Good morning, guys. I hope you're getting about as rested as I am. I'm just pumped to go uh, shoot some guns with my son right after lunch, man. Gonna be his first time, so I would recommend you not come up there until we're done. Um, So last night, we jumped right in. We started talking about how freedom's not doing whatever you want to do without restraint, but living according to God's design for our lives. And what is God's design for our lives? That we're in healthy relationships with God, and relationships with other people. Jesus summed it up, he said, the greatest commandment is love God and love other people. The question as we follow up is how do we do this? And what is this gonna look like with the next generation? How can you and I build relationships with this generation coming behind us who has more intellectual, moral, and spiritual challenges just one click away on a smartphone than we dreamed of having growing up? There's a popular book in the late 90s, you maybe have heard of it, it was a best-selling book called Tuesdays with Maury. And a journalist named Mitch Album tells a story of his mentor, one of his favorite people, a professor named Maury Schwartz. In the 1950s, Maury would go work in a mental hospital. So in the 50s, this was novel and new, and a lot of people didn't have experience doing this. So he was given a grant to just observe mental patients. So I went in there for months and observed mental patients just screaming, describing, crying all night, soiling their underwear, refusing to eat, just kind of bizarre, seemingly extreme behavior. One of the patients that he describes is a middle-aged woman. She would come out of her room every day and lie face down on the tile for hours. And Maury would just watch her, curious. Doctors and nurses would walk by and sometimes step over her hour after hour. She did the same thing every day and was ignored. He began to just sit on the floor with her and watch and just be present. Eventually, she got up, returned to her room. Now, the conclusion he said was this, and this has always stuck with me since I heard this story. He said what she mostly wanted was the same thing most people want, someone to notice she was there. Isn't that really when it's all said and done, the deepest cry of our hearts? (laughs) Someone just recognize that we're there and to pay attention to us and say, I see you. You know in Swahili, do you know hello is sawubona? You know what the translation is? I see you. Is that powerful? Hello actually means I see you and you're present. We have a generation of young people, and it's really true for all of us, who are just crying out for a significant adult and a friend and a mentor to just say, I see you for who you are. And when they're not seen, will act out in bizarre ways to just get attention. There's a story about this in the Bible many people miss in the story of King David and Absalom. See, David was a man after God's own heart, but it says in 1 Kings 1.8, he didn't discipline his kids. As a result, one of his sons, uh, Amnon, rapes his other daughter, Tamar. Out of anger, David's other son, Absalom, Absalom murders Amnon. 
And then because he fears anger from his father, he flees. So David mourns for Amnon, but he allows Absalom to return back to Jerusalem, but refuses to see him. Refused to see him. Now, this passage it describes, this is in 2 Samuel 14, verse 28. It says, so Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. So for two years, his father wouldn't see him. Then Absalom sent for Joab, who works for David, to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. He sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, so in other words, here's Absalom, he just wants to see his father, he's getting no response from his father or the people who work with his father, so what does he think? I'm gonna do whatever it takes just to see my father. You know what he does? It says, he says to one of his servants, see Job's field is next to mine, he has barley there, go and set it on fire. <laughs> so Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Now, Absalom does some crazy things and has some blame here, but you see what's going on? He's fearful for his father, but he just wants to be in his presence. His father won't reply, so he does something outlandish like lighting a field on fire so maybe his father will see him. And later down in the passage, it says, now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and he's finally able to be in the presence of the king. In other words, if dad won't see him, he's gonna do something just as bizarre as set a field on fire. That's much better than not being seen. I'm convinced we have a generation of young people who their heart of hearts, when it's all said and done, wants to be seen, wants to be known. And so much of the bizarre, outlandish behavior we see is like Absalom saying, will you see me? Can I just be in your presence? That's what social media is about. Really what social media does is just reveal every post, what's in the back of a young person's mind? How many likes am I going to get? How many shares am I gonna get? Because that represents how important you and the world think that I am. Social media is a heart cry to know and be known. I'm convinced when it's all said and done, the heart of this generation is to be called the beloved. It really is. The heart of this generation is to be called the beloved. I came across a study years ago and have kept it because to me it just shifted the way I think about this. This study was from 1939. So no one has accused me in this study of using recent stats. 1939 social worker study, but check this out. In 1939, so this is kind of at the start, really the beginning of World War II, some social workers were noticing some changes in the American family and beyond. So they started to make predictions of what would happen over the next 50 years. So this is before really the baby boomers, so to speak. So go back, we're in 1939, social workers are seeing certain trends take place in the American family, so they predict what's gonna take place about the next 50 years. And here's what they wrote. They said adults would become more interested in having rather than in giving, in consuming rather than in cherishing, in doing rather than in being. So having rather than giving, consuming rather than cherishing, doing rather than, than uh, being. 
In other words, they said, we're going to start seeing people more interested in gratification of themselves than in love and relationship outward with other people. And they said, as a result, a gulf would form between the generations and kids would move further away from adults and vice versa. And their final prediction was, we would see an epidemic of loneliness in the lives of young people and therefore a desperate search to fill their lives with meaning. Can you imagine how smart these sociologists were in 1939? That's exactly what we saw take place over the next few decades. That's exactly. Now, some studies would show that Gen Z, who's long after this. Now, Gen Z is like junior hires through like college students, roughly. You might say about like 12 to like 22. Many in this generation would actually describe themselves as the loneliest generation. They describe themselves as the loneliest generation. Although we've seen loneliness across generations, many in Gen Z describe themselves as the loneliest generation. And Jason, what you said about this summer, having more just mental health issues, I hear that everywhere I go. University presidents, pastors, this is not unique just to Hume. There is a mental health crisis Much of this was exacerbated and sped up through COVID, but the loneliness and the broken relationships are are massive. They're massive. Now, I love social media. I actually enjoy it. I kind of love it and I hate it, (laughs) right? But I think at its core, the key point is that the loneliness of this generation stems from relational brokenness. That's the heart of it. At the heart of the loneliness and mental health epidemic we're seeing, I firmly believe, is because of relational brokenness. We have a generation asking himself, who am I? Where do I belong? Do you really, truly love me? That's the question. I was speaking at a conference about two summers ago, and I was asked to give a talk on the Bible and same-sex marriage. When I was done, a young man came up to me, and he goes, hey, I'm curious. Is homosexuality like the one sin that can send you to hell? Now, because I'm a professor, sometimes I think on the level of ideas and miss like the relational connection, and my wife reminds me of these things, and I think I've gotten better. But for some reason, God gave me the insight. I thought, I doubt this is an academic question. I wonder if something's going on with this young man. So I said, hey, that's a really good question. Why don't we just kind of step outside and talk about this? He goes, sure. I said, you know what? That's a tough question. Can I just ask you why you ask this question? And as I listened to him and asked questions, This young man had same-sex attraction, grew up in a Christian home, knew his parents loved him, but had heard them make what he interpreted as homophobic statements and feared that if he came out, he wouldn't be loved. (laughs) That's the heart. Like, am I loved for who I am? And what happens with this generation is when they don't have the healthy relationships God has designed them for, what happens? We fill them up with counterfeits. We fill them up with counterfeits. So take consumerism. Some of the most recognizable brands among this generation are brands like Nike. 
And so many of this generation thinks if I just get those shoes, then my life will have meaning. If I get those clothes, if I wear this, it promises them, doesn't it? Consumerism says you're a material being and you're not happy because you don't have enough. But what happens? We get more and that's a well that just never gets full. It promises lies. It promises a counterfeit. How about busyness? How many of us keep ourselves busy and distracted (laughs) because we don't want to deal with some of the hurt in our lives? We all do it to varying degrees. I'll never forget, I, was, I still teach high school part-time. I'm full-time at Biola Talbot School of Theology. And for 10 years, I taught high school full-time. And I remember I used to have my students write in journals. These are freshmen in high school. And I said, we were talking about busyness. And they all said, our lives are so busy. So I said, I want you to take just two minutes or five minutes and just write down whatever comes to your mind. Why do you think we keep ourselves so busy? Keep in mind, these are freshmen. Freshmen aren't typically known for being like, insightful to say the least. They're freshmen. And students are writing down. We came back, we're talking. I'll never forget. I didn't have them share out loud, but one girl wrote something that just hit me. She said, I keep myself busy because I don't want to slow down and feel the loneliness in my heart. Wow is exactly right. We do that, don't we? It's like a hamster on a wheel. You go and you go and you go, but never get anywhere. Busyness is a counterfeit that we think, if I get this next job done, if I get this account, if I make that and I do this, then I'll be happy and it's always the next thing, isn't it? What about pornography? We talked about this yesterday. This is one of the biggest counterfeits. It's one of the biggest lies that says, this will make you feel good. This will soothe your pain. And what happens? It never does. In fact, sometimes we look at this generation, we think, well, they're young and they have access. It's just their hormones. I get it. And that's a piece of it. But when I look at how prevalent pornography is with young people, I have to wonder, is there something deeper going on? And think about it. If you're a high school student, and you're trying to, a, a guy, and you're trying to find your way in the world, understand who you are. It takes a risk to ask a girl out, doesn't it? She might say no. She might embarrass me. In pornography, you can feel good without a risk. The porn star smiles and never says no. It's not just a bodily thing. Porn promises this artificial life that will make you feel good and have meaning. And on the flip side, it actually makes you feel worse, doesn't it? It's a counterfeit to relationships. And again, that's what social media is. I'm not against social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Don't make fun of me, I'm actually even on TikTok. And it's not because I dance. A year and a half ago, my son who's 17, he goes, Dad, if you want to reach my generation, get on TikTok because that's where they are. I said, okay, I'm starting a TikTok account. So I create content. I want to reach out and engage students. Look, social media is not bad. It's good in many ways. But a digital like cannot replace a physical hug. We've created a world where we can live artificial, secondary lives like avatars that are not embodied, that don't have presence that are just soul, but not bodies. I read the scriptures. We are embodied beings. God could have made us just spirits, but he made us with bodies. 
There's something important about eye contact. There's something important about a hug, something beautiful about affection, especially from a man to a young man. Appropriate affection is powerful. And sometimes the social media can escape this by putting on our artificial lives to make everybody think we live these charmed lives, but on the inside, there's a generation of young people that are hurting. They're hurting. Now, here's a line, I didn't make this up, but a psychiatrist said this, when I read this, it's like the lights went on for me. Here's what he said, think about this. An addiction is something that's used to fill a void that a relationship is meant to fill. Is that powerful? Write that down. I don't have to write stuff down, I have photographic memory. I just don't have any film. (laughs) If you didn't get that, ask somebody over 30. An addiction is something that is used to fill a void that a relationship is meant to fill. You see, we are made for relationships with God and with others. And when we don't have intimate, real relationships, that need is going to get met another way. That's why when I look at pornography, I say that's not the root of the problem, that's the fruit of the problem. The root is a broken relationship with God and a broken relationship with somebody else. That's why, you know, it's amazing. The first thing described not good in the Bible. Genesis 1, God creates everything, including human beings, day six. Genesis 2 focuses on the garden and tells us that it's not good that man was alone. That's Genesis 2 before sin in Genesis 3. What does that tell us? Here's Adam, think about it. He's walking with God, had perfect health, perfect environment, but it's still described as not good. Why? Because we are social beings made to be in relationship with others. And when that relationship is not there, we're gonna fill it with something else. That's what this generation needs. They don't always see it. They don't always get it. They buy the lies of our culture and think, oh, it's not about relationships. If I get those shoes, if I get that grade, if I succeed in sports, my life will have meaning. Yesterday morning before I left, I interviewed a former porn star who became a pastor. He did a thousand adult films and was the performer of the year. It's like the top award you can get in the porn industry. He said, I strive for that, and the night I won the award, I was at home alone, I couldn't move because I was desperate, and I was lonely, and I was broken. That's what I thought was gonna fill me up, and it didn't. About a month ago, I interviewed a Navy SEAL, a friend of mine, Chad Williams, and by the way, we were on a trip in Israel, and I was like, you know what? Let's get a workout together. Don't challenge a Navy SEAL to a workout. I'd like to think I'm moderately tough. We're doing this workout. And I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? And I told him, I was like, man, I think I'm going to throw up. He goes, trash can over there. Let's keep going. I was like, dear Lord, we're doing 10 of these things. And I was like, I think I can only do eight. He goes, do 10. You'll hate yourself. I'm like, okay, the seal said it. I better do it. And I finished it. I was like, I feel pretty good about myself. But you know what he told me? He worked his whole life to become a seal. And the level of commitment to that is, I mean, it's, it's, insane. It's superhuman in many ways. The loneliest night, he said, of his life 
was when he graduated from SEAL training. He goes, because I thought that's what was going to give my life meaning. And then I came up with another goal. And then I came up with another goal. And then I came up with another goal. There's counterfeits all over our world. Promising to make us feel good. Promising to give us meaning. What scripture tells us, God made us for relationships with him and for relationships with others. Now I'm hoping all of you to greater and lesser degrees care about the generation coming behind you. I've done a ton of research on every study I can find on passing on the faith to the next generation. I mean, tons and tons. In fact, I wrote a recent book called So the Next Generation Will Know with a friend of mine, Jay Warner Wallace, former, how many of you recognize the name Jay Warner Wallace? I'm curious. Quite a few of you do, good. He's an apologist, cold case detective, was an atheist until he began to study the book of Mark through the lens of forensic science. By the way, if you haven't heard of him, this guy is all over Dateline and Nightline, one of the top cold case detectives in Southern California and beyond. And became a Christian when he started to study the gospel of Mark and was like, whoa, this is reliable testimony. This is true, before he even understood it. We have a chapter in the book where we come up with every single study about passing on the faith. And the good news is when you write a book with the detective and you need some research, I'm like, you're the detective. You track down all the articles and write a summary for me. I didn't really say it to him like that, but you get it. He's older than me anyways. But one of the studies that we came across is the largest study that I'm aware of, of faith transmission. This is a study, think about this, 3,500 people, 35 years, four generations. Kids, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. Sociological study, a professor named Vern Bankston at USC, University of Southern California, and he published in a book with Oxford Press. And think about this, what does the sociological data show? Over four generations, 35 years, is the most significant factor in faith transmission. Now, before I tell you the answer to that, I'll tell you what they concluded rocks a kid's faith. One was divorce between the parents. It is negatively correlated with a kid leaving their faith. Positively, you know what they said? They said grandparents are increasingly playing a positive role in faith transmission. You know what the number one factor was? Number one, any guesses? You nailed it, but not just fathers. Quote, this is a sociological study, Oxford Press, a quote, warm relationship with the father. Number one. Number one. Now, does that mean the mother's not important? No. But think about it. As crazy as California is, I'm pretty sure this is still true. When a child is born, a mother's present. (laughs) Can I still say that today? (laughs) It's California. I don't know. When a child is born, is a father present? Well, I hope so. More often than not, oftentimes not. The father tends to be a wild card. Just yesterday I interviewed Christian Smith, who has been studied faith transmission for 15 years. He said, an affectionate relationship with the parents and sociologically speaking, there's something about the father. 
that shapes that faith transmission. Friends, God designed us for relationships. He designed us for relationships. So positive faith, a positive relationship helps faith transmission. But on the flip side, you know where this is going. When there's a broken relationship with a father, it affects relationships on the other side. So my dad, quite a few of you have come up and and told me, and you've prefaced it this way, like, I know you hear this a lot, but your dad in college and his books, look, I love hearing that. I said yesterday, my dad is my hero. If you have a story about him, I would love to hear it. Some of you read his books years ago or heard him in college at Fresno State four decades ago, Josh, or actually that wasn't you, Josh, you're not that old, Um, in a few decades ago. I love hearing some of those stories, but my dad grew up in a small town in Michigan with about as dysfunctional of a family as you're gonna get. My dad was severely sexually abused for seven years. This is in the 50s, he told his mom, and his mom not only wouldn't believe him, she said, go pull off a branch and I'm gonna whip you until you say you are lying because nobody talked about that then. My dad's older sister took her life. My dad's dad was a town drunk in a small town, so he lived with the shame of that. We were sitting around as a family, to be honest, probably, I don't know, a few years ago. My mom is sharing funny stories of growing up in Boston, and my sister Heather goes, she goes, hey, dad, share a funny story, good memory you have when you were a kid. Awkward silence. I'll never forget it. My dad, he paused, he goes, kids, I don't have one. And I thought, are you kidding me? Not one? And rarely does a day go by that I don't have at least one good memory. I would have had some days better than others. Certainly not a week or a month or a year or a childhood. When my dad heard the claims of Christ and was challenged with it, you know what people said to him? They would say, you have a heavenly father who loves you. How do you think that was processed by my dad? Great, I have such a wonderful earthly father. I'd love to have a heavenly father. Of course not. Father equaled abusive, distant, drunk. It wasn't until he was convinced that Christianity is true and a man mentored him through the scriptures and relationally poured into him that he began to reorient his understanding of what a father could be and hence his understanding of a heavenly father. There's a psychologist by the name of Paul Vitz and he wrote an interesting book called The Faith of the fatherless. And he's a professional psychologist and he studied some of the great influential atheists over the past really probably a couple centuries. People like Sigmund Freud, Karl Marx, Camus, Sartre, etc. And he started to notice that almost all of them had something in common. A dead, distant, or harsh father. Isn't that powerful? Now, of course, there's exceptions to this. There's people with a bad father like my dad who becomes a great father and loves Jesus. There's people with great dads who rebel. There's exceptions. But that trend seems to be even stronger than correlation, that all of us view God in varying ways through how we view our earthly father. If your earthly father was too busy for you, there's a decent chance you wonder if God really pays attention when you pray. If your earthly father was authoritarian, you probably read the Old Testament through the lens that you were talking about. I see the judge and I see the harshness and miss the compassion. 
It's fathers. Fathers. So how would we as fathers, and you may not have kids, but all of us, you could say, are fathers in the church, aren't we? We all are. We're called to lead as men in the church and our community and to pour in the next generation. Here's just simple 10 practical things. Now, don't write down and do all of these. If you do, go for it. The idea would be that maybe one or two of these would click with you and you just try it. So don't feel like you have to do all 10 of these. The last thing I want to do is send you home with a list and you're like, man, I got three out of 10. That's a failing grade. That is not the point. The point is to say, you know, here's maybe one I do this, but I could come across it this way. Or that's one I hadn't thought about. Or that's what I've been meaning to do, but just need a little kick to do it. So 10 simple things. Number one is, have you shared your story with your kids? Have you shared your faith story, your story of getting married? Just simply share with kids or with other kids because we all have a story. Some of you have shared your stories with me already and it's powerful, powerful. Share a story with a young person. Do you know how Jesus communicated two ways? Number one, he asked questions. Number two, he told stories. Peter asked him, how many times should he forgive a brother and what does Jesus do? He tells the story of the unmerciful servant. He's asked, who is my neighbor? What neighbor, what story does he tell? The Good Samaritan. Jesus communicated by telling stories. See, there's something powerful about stories. Jesus could have said, well, your neighbor is anybody you run into, even across certain ethnic lines. He didn't preach at him that sense. What did he do? He told a story of somebody who loved that way. See, the thing about stories is we remember them, don't we? Studies show after you hear a sermon, you remember like 10% if you don't take notes and review them, 10%. You know what you remember? That's right, the stories. Jesus told stories, we relate to stories. We remember stories. And they're easier for people to identify with. They break down walls and they build bridges. Share your story. And if you think a young person won't listen, just say, you know what? Could I share my story with you? Then they can't turn around and say, I don't want to hear it because they just agreed if they say yes. Share a story is a powerful way to communicate with this generation. Second, enter a young person's world. Now, what do I mean by this? It's natural and easy for us to invite young people into what is important to us. But it's harder sometimes to find out what is important to a young person and do that with them. That makes a world of difference. I talked with a, a girl who grew up one time and she spent all this time with her dad. And she said as she got older, she started to look back on her childhood differently. She started to realize she spent a ton of time with her dad doing the things her dad wanted to do, but never the things she wanted to do. And she still loves her dad and has grace for him. But if we want to really pass on our faith to this generation, find out what our kids are into. And if you like sports and your kid is into drama, that might not come natural to you, but step into their world and find a way to make it important yes. and find joy in it. 
step into a young person's world. Third one is practice empathy. Practice empathy. Practice empathy. You know, sometimes I struggle with this. Sometimes I'm the dad that's like, you know what? Suck it up. You'll be fine. Face the consequences. And the other times I want to be the empathetic dad. And I don't always get it right. (laughs) That's for sure. But think about it. If we want to be seen and that's our deepest heart cry, isn't it powerful when somebody just says, you know what? Help me understand what you're going through. I just want to listen. I just want to understand. One of the most powerful things my father ever said to me, I'll never forget it, is it's more important to understand than to be understood. What if we Christian men led that way? It's more important to understand than it is to be understood. That takes humility, doesn't it? In high school, I, I played basketball at Biola, loved hoops. In high school, it was just a little bit over the top. I was that kid, I'd get up in the morning before class, uh, before school, and I would like jump rope. And after practice, I was supposed to be the one who locked the gym down below. I would intentionally leave it open, tell my coach it was locked. I'd drive away, then I'd come back, sneak in, and I would keep shooting hoops. Well, in high school, we lost this game. And I don't remember the details of this game, but we got beat. I came up to my dad, and a typical dad would be like, you know what, son, you got to play more defense. Man, why didn't you get through the screens on that guy? Take your shot. All my dad did when I walked over, he goes, man, I am so proud of you. It's such a joy to watch you play. Got a Facebook message about three years ago from a teammate of mine who was an agnostic or an atheist. He said, that empathy wrecked me because my dad never showed me that. I just want you to know that now I'm a Christian and God used that in my life. I thought, man, this incidental act of empathy, not on stage, just loving a kid, meeting them where they're at makes a difference there and beyond. I was just, this past Sunday, I was doing a Q&A and there's a question I get somewhat frequently. On stage with like a big church, the question is, On the spot, you got to respond. The question was, Sean, how would you respond if your kid came out as trans? How would you respond if one of your kids came out as gay or lesbian? Now, that's a good question, isn't it? All I can tell you is, here's what I would say. I would say to my son or daughter, I would say, thank you so much for trusting me enough to share this part of your life with me. I said, I can only imagine how much time and stress it took to tell your dad who you know has certain views on God's design for sex and relationships, this part of your life. Just know this changes nothing about my love for you. We are going to work this through together. That's what I would say, barring the flesh taking over and leading me astray. That's my heart to respond that way. A good friend of mine is, he's an apologist and his daughter in high school does not believe. And he struggled with this for a while and he said to me, he goes, Sean, my job is not to convince my daughter of an argument. It's to convince her of my love. 
I think he's right. It's your kindness that leads to repentance. This generation, many of them are afraid they're going to get canceled and they're going to get criticized. They see what happens to John Grudem this week and pull up emails from years ago, gets canceled. This is the world they're growing up in. So many of them are afraid. In cancel culture, there's no forgiveness. Empathy is not only a Christian virtue, it's a powerful way to build a relationship with a young person. And that brings us to our fourth one is be a good listener. Just be a good listener. This is really part of empathy. Again, Jesus told stories and he asked questions. He told stories and he asked questions. It, this is kind of hard for me because I'm an apologist and I'm a professor. My daughter gave me a mug and the cover it says, I don't need Google. My dad knows everything. <laughs> I'm going to take that as a compliment. <laughs> Although it was a fun little chat. She's like, hey, dad, perfect mug for you. <laughs> Thank you, Chana. You're on restriction, no, I didn't say it. I, like, I struggle with that because I like to read and think and have ideas. But I know a question is almost always better than an answer. It's almost always better than an answer. Young person asks you a question, you go, wow, that's a thoughtful question. Tell me why that question's on your heart and your mind. Instead of answering it, well, when's the first time you thought of that question? If you had to venture a guess, what would you say? Or based on knowing me, I'm really curious, how do you think I might answer this? Questions are almost always better than answers. If you want to build a relationship with a young person, ask good questions. Now, we have to pick our time and our place, right? Sometimes parents are home, kids come through the front door. It's like, hey, how was your day? Tell me math class. And the kid's just wiped and doesn't want to talk then. You've got to know kids. You've got to know young people. You've got to pick the right time in the right way. There's wisdom in this. But questions and being a good listener are powerful. That's why the Bible, James 1.19 says, be quick to listen, slow to speak. Fourth, express unconditional love. Express unconditional love. And you're going to see this overlap. Like I said, five. Like I said, five. You guys were that kid in class, weren't you? Yep. But we need you. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me. Don't ever do it. No, I'm just kidding. Like I said, number five. One, two, three, four, five. Perfectly. Is express unconditional love. Express unconditional love. When I was 12 years old, my father was doing this global campaign on sexual purity. Does anybody remember what it was called in the 80s? Anybody remember? It was, it was a, Promise Keepers came shortly out of this, and he did speak and incorporate in that. It was before True Love Waits. I think someone said it was called Why Wait? The first global sexual purity campaign in the 80s. I hit puberty Right around the time my dad is this vocal international spokesperson for not having sex until you're married. And I remember I came home one day when I was 12, and I don't remember what spurred it on, but I asked my dad, I was like, Dad, you know, sheepishly, what would happen if I got a girl pregnant? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Maybe 12 or 13. But the idea was hitting me of like, if I'm sexually active, what could follow from it? 
Um, just for the record, I hit puberty at eight, just so you know. Just... <laughs> this is men joke, don't take this any further. I'll never forget what my dad said. He kind of got down and looked me right in the eyes. He goes, son, I don't care if the whole world called me hypocrite. You and I would work this through together. And that told me, my dad doesn't love me because what I do or my appearance or my grades or anything. He loves me because I'm his son. That's what I want to communicate to young people. I will not cancel you. All right, number seven. Just kidding. Calm down. Number six. <laughs> number six. Mentor a young person. Mentor a young Now, what do I mean by this? What I'm not telling you to do is to add a program to your already busy lives because that's not going to happen. What mentoring is basically doing is taking the things you already do with your time and including a young person, kid or grandkid, along with what you're doing. Did you notice Eric Taunus is up here with a student from Biola? He's already come up to speak. Found a student who wanted to be here. He's like, let's drive up together. Let's share meals. Let's go to Hume together. That's how you pour your life into somebody else. Do you like to fix cars? Find a young person in your neighborhood or your church. Like, you know what? Sunday afternoon, I'm working a couple hours. Come over, help me out. I'd love to teach you a few things. And you're just spending time with that person. That's what mentoring is. So for me, even if it's just running the store, I try to grab one of my kids just to have that time with them. That's what mentoring is. So I challenge you to think through, parent, grandparent, uncle, what are the things you do and how could you naturally incorporate a young person into the things you're already doing? That's what's meant by mentoring. The next one, uh, very quickly, is just set reasonable boundaries. Have reasonable boundaries. You know, some surprising statistics are in one study, 69% of British teens thought parental controls online were a good idea. That's surprising, isn't it? My daughter was the last one to get a smartphone in her school in eighth grade, the last one. Do you know why we give kids smartphones early? Because we don't want to deal with it. It's easier. And then what happens? And then we actually end up not helping our kids and our grandkids. I think in my relationship with kids, if we have reasonable boundaries and we state them, most will honor and respect it if we're consistent too. Uh, eight is pray. Pray. Sometimes if you're with a young person, there's plenty of times. I've, I've had a conversation just simply said, you know what? I really, I don't know how to fix this for you. I wish I knew what to say. But I know one thing I could do right now is just pray for you. And then maybe we can talk again. Is that okay? How can I pray for you specifically? And I'll just write it down and then text the person later at some point and go, hey, how's it going? Prayed for you, thinking about you. Man, that small note can go a long ways with a young person. Pray for a young person. Nine is share a meal. Share a meal. There's something sacred. Sometimes I look at not only what Jesus says, but also what Jesus does. Like how brilliant Jesus is. He got in a boat to speak because the water would amplify his voice. That's brilliant. But in that culture and today, in Semitic cultures, they will share a meal. 
There's something about a meal where you talk and you relate, you break bread and you fellowship. In fact, there was a study in time a few years ago called The Magic of the Family Meal, and they said kids who dine with the folks or significant adults regularly, far less likely to get into trouble, less likely to have a low self-image, more likely to succeed and just be more generally happy in life. They also said, this quote amazed me, they said, it's at a meal where stories are told, jokes are laughed at, and the wider world viewed through the lens of the family's values. It's over a meal in relationship that conversations often happen. And the last one is just have a conversation, not a lecture, just a conversation. There was a study, this was in 2018. It was called Undercover High. And these students in their mid-20s went back enrolled as high school students to observe youth culture. Pretty interesting. And at the very end, one of the students who went back, and I think they did maybe a semester long as a fake high school student, they said, they, they teens are craving for adults to understand them and see them for who, who, for who they are and the struggles that they are facing. If you want to reach this generation, be willing to have a conversation with them. Friends, like I've said a bunch, this generation has more challenges just one click away in their smartphone than you and I dreamed of. We have responsibility as grandpas, as fathers, as uncles, as men in the church just stepping in and building relationships with this generation. A lot of times I think about my life. As, as an educator, they're told us to think about life with the end in mind. Like what goal do you want and then foster plan to get there. As I think about the end of my life and I look back, there's a lot of things I'm not gonna care about that I'm very tempted to spend a lot of time and energy on right now. But I know when, I'm, when I look back, what I'm going to care about are relationships and people, right? Especially the generation coming behind me. So if you're hearing this and you're like, man, I wish I heard this a while ago. My relationships are broken. Can I just tell you, God has grace for you. God has grace for you. You can't change the past. But you can start to take steps forward today in your life, baby steps, and the life of a young person. What's more rewarding than that? Amen? There's a couple books back there that may be helpful. A bunch of you asked me last night that talk. I don't think I've, I have not given that talk very many times, and I kind of tailored it last night for here, but that is from the book I wrote, Chasing Love. It's for students, but I've had a bunch of adults be like, hey, that actually was Helpful for me to understand what students are thinking. Now, the first book I wrote had 10 chapters because isn't that what books are supposed to have, 10 chapters? I didn't have kids. This one I wrote, I'm like, what actually would be helpful for parents? And I was like, 10 chapters that are like 15 pages would not be helpful. So I made it 30 chapters, like four page quick that many parents and grandparents have told me they've even read with their kids just to have conversations about issues of sexuality. So that book is back there. And then this talk I just gave is one of the chapters in the book, So the Next Generation Will Know, uh, that I wrote with Jay Warner Wallace. There's a ton of other things in there. It's basically like a practical guide. How do we do this? 
How do we build relationships? How do we engage this generation and pass on our faith? Some of you are thinking, I'm a guy, I don't read. Look, here's the deal. You don't have to. Buy it, give it to your wife, she'll highlight it. You can read it in five minutes. (laughs) I'm gonna sneak the back. Shane, are you back there, buddy? All right, I've hired my son to help with the books. So he will be back there. Take it away, I think you're coming up. Let me pray as you come up. And then I'm going to sneak to the back, and then we are shooting right after lunch. So we're going to kind of sneak out there a little, little more quickly than normal. But Father, thanks that we can be here. Thanks for the privilege of being fathers, whether we have biological kids or not, that you have called us to reach and equip this generation. God, I just pray, give us creativity, give us insight to better love the young people in our communities. And we pause to say thanks for those who loved and ministered to us. And we praise in your name. Amen.